0: Three, two, one. Yes! What just happened? Thankfully, not. <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh man. Okay. Well, maybe we try that again.
0: <laughs>
1: that's that's my vote.
0: <laughs> All right. We we'll try it again. <laughs> Make it sound like I didn't have a dog land on me. <laughs> yeah.
1: Okay. (laughs) On you and on your legacy. (laughs) Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Bearded Bible Brothers. I am Firebeard Matt, although there's very little fire around me right now. Here in northern Arizona, we're covered in snow. But I'm also joined by Snowbeard Josiah Marshall, who I'm I'm sure has much more snow than I.
0: Barely. Really? Yeah. It's been a little warm up here, and we've gotten some rain, too, so it's been strange. We don't don't have as much snow as we would like to have, Um, but we've got snow on the ground. I will say that. We do have snow on the ground. Well, you sent it all my direction,
1: because this this last week and over the weekend i think cumulatively we got about seven or eight inches and then the places that are a little bit higher uh, on the outskirts of town got more
0: oh wow
1: yeah we are buried in snow
0: how many inches did you get overall you know
1: i don't know offhand i know that one of my neighbors built a full-size igloo Oh wow! <laughs> it was kind of impressed, indeed. Well, today we're jumping into our study of the ten words, also known by many as the uh, known too many as the Ten Commandments, known by others as the Ketubah. <laughs> so, yep. Josiah, kick us off. What what is the what is a Ketubah, and what are the ten words?
0: Oh boy! Well, one of the things we've talked about before in, in a previous uh, podcast that will I'm going to have you. I think you 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 have a great way of explaining it because um, you gave that one sermon uh, the a two sermon series uh, one time and I even came down and listened to it. And you did a phenomenal job of I outlining knew. the Jewish wedding approach. And, uh, there is, there's God loves patterns, as we've said before in a previous podcast and the pattern going on here at Mount Sinai or is otherwise known as Mount Horeb is, uh, is quite phenomenal when you start seeing how so many of the pieces that are taking place here go throughout scripture. Um, one of which not to get too sidetracked here at the beginning, but one of which was, um, how uh, God came down onto Horeb Mount Sinai and how that mirrors a lot with uh, Elisha, that there was an earthquake, there was fire, there was wind. um, And then there was God. Yes. And I was reading another book. I'll tell you more about in a little bit, but um, it is just, it's just fascinating to me to really look at this and see so much more of what God is trying to illustrate in not only his relationship with Israel, but his relationship with, with all of humanity and how he would have us be in relationship with him. So if, if you could give us a rundown, more of a, a, a kind of a, a timeline of what a Hebrew um, marriage was like, I, I, I think our, our listeners would really enjoy that. Sure. I can do that. So
1: um, a lot of marriage language, specifically a Hebraic wedding, is found here in the book of Exodus and and there's a massive massive wedding where where God marries the people of Israel. And it starts in chapter nineteen, shortly after he brought them out across the sea or through the sea. Um, brought the sea back down on their enemies, on Pharaoh and his armies. Um, after connecting again with, um, oh goodness, with Jethro, Yitro. Right. And then th- then they arrive at the mountain. And in Exodus mm-hmm. 19, at the, near the beginning of the chapter, God kind of lays out his plan. And it's not a plan. It's a plan that's already been alluded to very heavily through God's conversations with Abraham Um, But it's not a plan that you would expect a deity to communicate to his people that he just rescued the story. and, And I say that because much of the Hebraic text is, is mirroring and riffing off of other ancient Mesopotamian religions and texts right? and comparing and contrasting the God of the Bible, Yahweh versus their gods and pantheons. So it, what you might expect of, of a, a divine being to say to the people that he just rescued at this moment would be something like, I just brought you through. Uh, I rescued you out of the hands of your oppressors. I used 10 plagues to do it. Y'all owe me. So I will be your God. You will be my people. And um, I will, you will serve me. You will offer sacrifices to me. And, and I will guide and protect you. And, and indeed, that's part of what what happens here. And if, if we've only ever done a cursory look at the Old Testament, you might think, yeah, that's pretty much exactly what happens. But here at the beginning of Exodus 19, and in, if anybody's looking at the text while you're listening to this, you see that the Ten Commandments are not in Exodus 19, but the story starts here. God says, I have a plan. I want to make you guys my treasured possession and the kingdom of priests. When he uses the phrase treasured possession, that's a very specific phrase in the Hebrew, and it's only ever used in two different contexts throughout the Bible. One is a king referring to his treasures, his gold, and another is a, a groom referring to his bride. So what what God is communicating to Moses to then go and tell the people, is, is he's reiterating the proposal that he gave to Abraham way back in Genesis 15. And that's another conversation for another time. But he's re-proposing to the people of Israel. I want to be your groom. I want you to be my bride. I want to make you my treasured special possession. I want you to be unique in all the earth. Because he says, "In all all the nations of earth are mine, but i choose you i created everything everything and everyone belongs to me but but i want to have a special relationship with you all and so moses carries that message down the hill and they accept and agree and then wedding prep starts and god says okay go and consecrate the people for 3 days don't let them have sexual intercourse with their spouses make sure that they take a bath and all this kind of stuff. Now, why does God ask for that? Well, when, in ancient times, when a Hebrew male asks for his for a, a woman's hand in marriage, the two families get together, or sometimes he just goes over to her father's household, and they have a small meal together, and he offers a glass of wine across the table to her, and if she takes it and drinks from it, she's accepting the proposal. At which time... He goes off to literally add a room onto his dad's house. She stays under her father's household and under his covering and uh, starts wedding prep. So she starts making the dress. She starts getting her bridesmaids together and getting them all set up for the coming wedding. And they have no communication between the two of them, except that the gentleman who will play the role of the best man is carrying letters back and forth between... The two of them which is what most of the book of song of songs is its the communications carried by letter carrier between groom and bride so when the groom is finally on his return to go and collect the bride and take her back to his father's house for the actual wedding ceremony the seven day feast that is a wedding ceremony um, he, he rolls into town. He often tries to time it to be in the middle of the night for the element of surprise, but he does not do it quietly. He comes with singing and dancing, torchlights, trumpets, a loud pomp and circumstance, and wakes up the entire village. And when she hears him coming, her first thing to do is she takes a bath, both ceremonial. To uh, make herself clean, basically washing away her former life as a single woman, getting ready to be wedded, but also physical for hygiene purposes. So here in in, uh, Exodus 19, God just proposed, the people accepted, and then God says, have the people take a bath and become ceremonially clean, for in three days I will come down onto the mountain to where you guys are. Now I don't, Josiah. I'm going to take a quick break. How how deep do you want me to go into this? Do you want me to skip ahead to the Ketubah, or do you want me to keep rolling?
0: <laughs> keep rolling, because I think there's. So I, I think there's a lot of interesting um, correlations between what's happening within just uh, this standard approach to marriage by the within the Israelite people, and a lot of theological themes. A lot yes. of biblical themes that take place here, and even spiritual themes as well. And Absolutely. So I, I, I like the bigger picture approach, because then you're able to start seeing pieces come together from Scripture that has normally been in pieces, like on a table, as a, as a puzzle. And now we're able to put it together and begin to see the great tapestry that God is trying to put together.
1: Excellent. Excellent.
0: So after this,
1: the people do, they set themselves apart and do the ceremonial cleansing and then God comes down onto the mountain with a whole ton of pomp and circumstance with specifically lightning, thunder, uh, flashes in the sky, and a great earthquake. And all of the people are terrified. A ton of that is verbal reference back to the original proposal to Abraham in Genesis 15, uh, excuse me, might be 12, I don't recall. Um, when when Moses, uh, not Moses, good grief, when uh, Abraham,
0: uh,
1: when Abraham kills several different types of animals, lays them the two halves of the animals facing each other, God puts him into a deep sleep reminiscent of Adam, uh, God creates Eve puts Abraham into a deep sleep, and it specifically says that Abraham was terrified, but it gives no reference as to why. And then God himself, in two parts, a a burning torch and a flaming furnace, passed between the pieces, and he makes a one-sided covenant, meaning it was not dependent on Abraham fulfilling anything. It was just God saying, I swear by myself to do the following things for you. Right. which is a very, very, very unique covenant. Right. So we get a and lot that was, of that
0: terminology that and language. It's
1: 15. 15, thank you.
0: Yep,
1: that was 15. So we get a lot of that terminology and language repeated here in, in Exodus when God descends down off the mountain. And this moment, um, and, and the, the the verbal picture that gets painted, is is going to be picked up and used throughout the rest of the text all the way through multiple times through the Revelation. So this this whole picture of God descending with pomp and circumstance, with fire, lightning, flashes, dark cloud, and descending onto the mountain, that gets used over and over for a divine being showing up in throughout the Bible. And so the people are terrified and uh, basically send Moses up the mountain. Well, oh, I'm skipping a part. I apologize. But then <laughs> it says right. that Moses, in in every single English translation that I've ever discovered, it says in the in the English texts that Moses led the people either to the foot of the mountain, to the base of the mountain, um, to to the bottom of the mountain. But in the Hebrew, what it actually literally says is he led them under the mountain. Yep. So that doesn't mean they went into a copper mine down underneath the mountain. That's a, it's a hyperbole right. as Moses is writing this. He uses that phrase because Hebrew weddings take place under a chuppah, which is a really fancy easy up. Um, it's a, a canopy. If anybody has seen a uh, fiddler on the roof, uh, mm-hmm. when, when, in the middle of the night, the procession up to where the the wedding is going to be held, and then there's a, a big canopy where the bride, the groom, the officiant, and a whole bunch of others are standing there. and And as the parent in the movie, as the parents and the, and the play, as the parents start singing about their their little girl growing up, she is doing circles around her groom. But all of that takes place under the chupa, under the covering. Mm-hmm. And so Moses, in in this part of the Exodus, describes, he uses the phrase, I brought them under the mountain, to demonstrate that the cloud that is covering the mountain completely is acting both as, as the, the presence of the groom, but also as the covering. The cloud is the chuppah. And he, the leader of the people and the best man in this wedding, takes the bride under the chuppah because we're about to have a big wedding. So then um, it goes on to describe that the people are afraid. God tells them, don't touch the mountain. Um, and they send Moses up the mountain to receive the 10 words. So in a Jewish ceremony, wedding, ceremonial wedding, uh, traditionally, both they do in modernity and in antiquity, um, Instead of like a, a Western wedding where typically the exchange of vows is mutual, whether you use traditional vows of till death do us part, or you write your own vows, traditionally in the West, both bride and groom repeat the vows or, or share vows. In in a Hebraic wedding, it's not so. The groom presents the ketubah, which is 8 to 12 things there's no rigid number but 8 to 12 things that are really really important to him and as as they're about to start their life together these 8 or 8 to 12 things are are what he wants her to agree to keep for example the first of the of the 10 words here in the exodus have no other gods before me right in right. marriage terms that's be faithful to me yeah. I am choosing you apart from all women, apart from all nations to be uniquely connected to me. I'd like you to stay faithful to me as well. And that's paramount, right? Every every right. Uh, significant romantic relationship has rules, contrary to what society might tell us these days. Yeah. Relationship does have rules and boundaries. And the first rule is almost always monogamy. God is asking Israel to be monogamous. And then the second one, um, have no other, make no graven image. Why? Because he had already done that. If anything that they make representing him will be so far removed from what he actually looks like. But we read in Genesis 127 that he made images of himself already, and that would be humanity. So don't try and, uh, the analogy I always use, I apologize, it's a groaner, but it works. The analogy I always use is, uh, imagine the painter Bob Ross painting his happy little trees and his happy little clouds, and he puts a a portrait of himself in the picture. We'll say that uh, he puts a, a little Bob Ross sitting under a tree with an easel next to him. Now, let's make the example ridiculous and say that that little Bob Ross becomes animate. And he decides that he wants to make a portrait of the original real Bob Ross, a creative thing, making a creative thing of the creator. That's going to be so far removed from what the creator actually is. It, it's it's going to so pale in comparison. So God says in, in the Ketubah, and this is number two, this is hugely significant. He says, don't even try. Let, come to me, let me communicate to you who I am, and let's just have fellowship together. Which actually leads into number four, which God gets really, really wordy about the, the fourth uh, part of his ketubah. <laughs> Seriously, the first couple are are you're couple right, of you're verses right, he does. each. He really and does. then he goes on a monologue about Sabbath. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and I wonder if some of our listeners just heard me say, sabbath and kind of their eyes crossed and and <laughs> groaned and uh, but but it's really really significant that god put this that the groom put this in his ketubah because the purpose of sabbath as he outlines in four or five verses he says you need a day off every single week because we need to have a date night mm-hmm. or a date day mm-hmm. because that's going to function very significantly in several different ways. Number one, it's going to be a reminder to yourself that you are not God and that the rest of the week will continue on without you, which means you can rest. You can rest in me. Kind of the the phrasing from Song of Songs, come away with me, my darling and my bride. Leave the vineyards, leave your work. Come, let's spend time together. This is also why the Hebrew day uh, well, another instance of why the Hebrew day starts at sundown. Original, it, the, the main reason is found in Genesis 1 on the sixth, six days of creation and the seventh day of rest, which God references explicitly in, in the Ketubah, in the right. ten words. Each day says there was evening and there was morning the first day. Evening, morning, second day. So the, the Hebraic day starts at sundown. Because the first act of every Hebrew of the new day is, hey, God, you've got this. I'm going to bed. I trust you to keep everything spinning while Mm -hmm. I'm going to take a nap. Mm -hmm. And then he says here in the ketubah, in in the fourth one, he says, "Um, you need that on a weekly basis, not just daily. You need a 24-hour where you just trust me and we can play and we can sit and we can converse and we can... Sing and we can spend quality time together enjoying each other without worry of work, without worry of production. We just mm-hmm. need time together. The importance of dating.
0: Can I and add in a I... point right there, actually? Sure, sure. Okay. Um, part of my reading was in a, a book that I referenced a while back, Rabbi Svi uh, Matsuyahu Abrahams. And um, in it, he talks about um, jubilee and how attached mm. to jubilee is this uh, concept of cycles and life cycles and what jubilee is meant to be in our lives. But one aspect of it that he gets into um, is the cycles of of uh, life as well as um, uh produce agricultural Mm -hmm. and um one of the things he ends up saying is that it is that um the 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 people so let's see the verse if you go in my ways and guard my mitzvotes and do them i will give you her rains in their times and the land will give her produce and the tree its fruit and it says that they are compared to a sharecropper who doesn't actually own the land, but is just paid to work the field and is rewarded according to how much the field produces? Yes. But here's the interesting thing: is that the same word for sharecropper is related to the word betrothed. Ooh. He says that life is also like an engagement period in which we prepare ourselves to be a worthy bride to Hashem. So in this time period of being patrolled, we're just a sharecropper. Only in the world to come do we rightfully take our place and join in joint owner of the field, the field of apples alluded to as the paradise. Mm, so not good. only do we have this something going on in, in, in Sinai and Horeb, we also see it happening even at the end times. There is this oh, coming absolutely. together and there's this transference of relationship that continues to take place, not just on an, even a national level, but even on an individual level. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And, that, um, and so as you were talking about being dependent, he said that uh, we should not be fooled into thinking that we own the land and that we are independent. Rather, Hashem owns the land and we are very much dependent on him when it comes to and money. A, so go ahead.
1: Absolutely. And that's a theme that we often read past, um, but all throughout Torah and then Ooh. again, in the prophets, as the as the people of Israel are being kicked out of the land, the, the theme of we're I'm bringing you into this promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey, but he never uh-huh. says it's theirs. It no. is absolutely his land, and that has some really significant uh, implications on modern geopolitics. But for the sake of our study today, uh, they, they are tenants. They are the ones, think of Proverbs 31. What, a, what a, a wonderful wife does for her husband and for her family. Part of it is working in, in the land alongside him.
0: Mm-hmm. But
1: it's not her land. It's, yeah. it's an honor and a privilege to go work in that land next to him. We can also think Ruth and Boaz. It's an honor to be allowed to go into that land Um. Because Ruth goes from being a a pauper who is gathering uh, the leftovers after the workers have already gone through to being married to him. And it's not stated explicitly, but the implication being she's now helping him run the whole, the whole system, but it's his system. It's his land. And that might sound, sound bizarre to our Western ears of, of his versus hers. And, and she's just lucky to be there. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about, that that's, that wasn't the culture. It, it's not about possessive ownership. It's about partnership. She is now able right. to come alongside him. And as Tim Mackey at the Bible Project always says, God is looking for partners. And he has been from the very, very beginning. That's why he put Adam, who was formed outside of the garden, put mm-hmm. him in the garden to mm-hmm. tend and keep it. Because he's looking for partners.
0: Right. Right. And that's definitely seen in the Hegeda Etzer, where um that, that's the phrasing in uh what is it, Genesis 2, where that's describing Eve, the suitable yes. um, helper. Um and while that's an okay one, I, I see it more as that, that 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 phrasing is more standing in front of the other. We've we've talked about this one before, but standing in front yes. of the other and offering um uh, basically kind of opposition. You're, you're looking at them lovingly saying, no, no, let's do it this way, or let's do it that way, or offering some sort of, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Help Uh, in the form of,
1: uh, offering up suggestions that maybe he didn't think of before.
0: Right. But at the same time, being um, in a position to where I can stand in front of you and with a, with a type of possession of you being able to say things to you that other people couldn't say and offer a challenge. That's it, challenge to you that is necessary to be in a relationship. And one of the interesting places, one of the interesting places that we see that actually at work is right here. Moses. Yeah after 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 this entire marriage ceremony israel walks out on god and there's moses approaching god and god saying hey i'm going to i'm going yeah. to st- move out of the way moses i'm going to kill him i'm going to knock him yeah. out and after moses saying,
1: and incident of,
0: of yeah, and and he and moses is saying no 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 that's not who you are right and so there is that establishment of relationship, it's, and, and that's why I said uh, earlier, national and individual. Mm-hmm. I think that this, this hyper-focus on individual relationship with God has been taken to a degree that we lost sight of the national approach with their, or the corporate, I should say, even the corporate approach to understanding it's not just us in relationship with God as individuals, it's us as his family and as his children that we are in relationship with God.
1: Yes, I heard somebody once say that um, we need a translation of the New Testament written by a Southerner with a with a drawl, because <laughs> in in Greek the number of times that Paul uses the term "you" versus "y'all," he uses "y'all" a whole lot more, but we translate it into English as as "you," because in in uh, proper English we don't have a "y'all." but we need a translation of it that says y'all so that we can see just how interconnected we are with one another and not mm-hmm. independent from one another but not dependent we are interdependent right we depend upon one another and we depend upon God primarily and the whole and and with that picture the whole conversation about the church being the body with Christ as the head makes all the more sense this is not just people that I happen to be in proximity to because they bought a latte at the at the church coffee shop and sit in the same room with me for an hour and a half on Sundays. This is interconnected members of a body, and we absolutely need one another.
0: Right, right. And so with this aspect of the ketubah, um, this it functions in two ways, right? It's a uh, both parties are voluntarily and willingly entering into a marriage, and that that mm-hmm. marriage is accompanied by a ketuba, which the word itself means to write, it's a verb, yeah. And um, but it stipulates the obligations that a husband takes on, on his bride during marriage, as well as his finan- financial obligations, even in the case of a divorce, which is interesting because right after um the, the 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 decalogue is given God starts talking about um making contributions so such as even in 25 he says tell the people of Israel to take up a collection for me accept a contribution from anyone who wholeheartedly wants to give wholeheartedly wants to give there's nothing obligatory about this but yet God is making it and that's the other piece that that oh okay so if God's if we're saying yes to this um, it's conditional on also what we have to do, but yet God is the one that continues from the very beginning to even to this point continue to take on the re- responsibility of what happens if these covenants break. Yes. And yes. And so when I, when I think of now, this is me thinking off the top of my head here. So if if later on I I, I um get to a point where I might not agree with myself with what I'm about to say. But the reason I'm willing to say it is because I find it absolutely fascinating of a couple of things that's taking place here. Now, I read an article about how revelation happens in the midst of chaos. Now, it's interesting that chaos is attached to revelation. It is. But when Moses is up on the mountain, he's in the cloud. Now, clouds tend to have a dampening effect, right? Mm -hmm. Um, even in fog, it has a dampening effect. So I've been thinking about what it would sound like for Moses to be up in this cloud with God, getting the ketubah, which means to write.
1: It's it's from the same derivation of the word to write.
0: Correct. Correct. It is. And, um, it, yeah, the verb to write. Yep. And so, um, one of the, uh, as I said before, one of the other features of um, that's found in um, the story here at Mount Horeb and Mount Sinai is reflected in first Kings nineteen, where Elijah goes to Mount Horeb again. Here's another mm-hmm. ap- another uh, uh, portion in scripture where Sinai is brought back into the spotlight, because Elijah goes there and he hides in a cave. Makes me yes. wonder if it's the same cave that, that Moses went into. Yeah, <clears throat> and then,
1: and, and uh, I'm going to jump in just a little bit sure. of uh, geographical context. Elijah's whole showdown on Mount Carmel, Mount Carmel is way in the north of Israel on the border with Lebanon. And Mount Horeb, or Sinai, is way, 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 way down south. And so in in the text where it describes him going way out into the wilderness, stopping under a broom tree, um, angels come and minister to him and nourish him so that he can continue going way further south. he He's really, really desperate on the run and and God meets him in this cave.
0: Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. And so we've got these two events correlating heavily. And with the events that surround it, the earthquaking, fire, cloud, and even the concept of 40 days and 40 nights, it's, well, yes, we definitely see some correlations with what Jesus went through. <clears throat> but why is this always taking place in desert? What is, why is desert so, so important in scripture? Why, why is God doing everything in, in, in the desert? And um, because I, I, was, I was writing down some, some, some questions I was having, and uh, one of it was, uh, well, how do you hear what God is trying to say? And that we, we see that definitely in, from Paul in Romans 10, 17, that hear, uh, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So if we're mm-hmm. not reading God's word, then are we even listening is another mm-hmm. question I ask myself. And then what do you hear? You're hearing God making this commitment to me, to us, saying this is a relationship I want to be in with you. And this is the prosperity that would come out of having that relationship. But it's more of a reliance upon me because as we just talked about a little bit ago, sharecropper and betrothed is very much put together. So if there's another concept attached to that, that if we're not going to live by a nature of what we we reap, what we sow – We're being taken out of that process when we commit with God and even take that Sabbath break and saying, I'm going to rely on you what I need for today. It's not going to be about what I've done in order to reap what I need. You're going to give me everything I need. And so the other part of this then would be, well, where do you hear it? And this is where I go back to Rabbi Avraham and it's out of, uh, he, he does, uh, he works off of the parshas, off of the uh, individuated readings from the Torah. And um, this is Deuteronomy 1.1, 1, 1, where it says, these are the words that Moshe, Moses spoke to all of Israel in the plains of Jordan in the desert. In the desert. So he focuses on Midbar, which is desert. Desert is a place free from distractions, free from the world of things. Midbar is... Uh, love speaking because only in a place free from distractions, can we ever hope to hear Hashem speaking to us for this very yeah. reason. The Midrash tells us to make ourselves into a desert, make ourselves into mm-hmm. a desert. Interesting. So there is a little voice inside all of us giving us advice on what to do or what not to do. This is the softly spoken voice of Lashon or love language, the voice of the yet, but also of the Yetzer Tov. Which is um, our good and our good intentions or our good uh, uh, attributes, but it takes a yes. lot of training to hear this voice over the very loud voice of uh, the voice of the ego. Now, one of the interesting—he goes into the gematria a bit, where he compares these two words and finds that they—they they both are, have an aspect of twenty-six, which is Hashem's name, hinting to us mm. th- of this idea that. Um, That uh, uh, Yetzer Tov is a much loftier state of being, but that Hashem, he points out that Hashem is not in the wind, God is not in the wind or the loud noise or the fire, only in the very fine sound of silence. Mm. So he goes farther on where he, there's a couple of aspects he's talking about regarding this particular Parsha, but he goes into the area of silence where he says that um, uh, life is compared to climbing a mountain and that when we reach the top of the mountain, we reached a, a place in our lives where we can look back and see um, what what we've allowed in and what we've written into our lives and how it's taken effect in our lives. And so if we take Ketubah, to the idea of being written something we were to write or be written into our lives. He goes on to say this in or in order for the words of our Torah to be heard, we first have to understand what they are saying, because we know that sometimes words have two meanings. The more we busy ourselves with the Torah, the more we give sound to silence. Then as the words come alive to speak to us, we find ourselves humming with excitement and we perceive things more clearly and live in a world where we can see the bigger picture. And I thought that's what what a wonderful perspective here, because if we're talking about a quiet, silent place, one of the other features that we see in Scripture heavily is what Jesus did say in even Mark 1 where he goes off to a quiet place to pray. He's looking for less distractions and he's looking for this place to where it's only him and God. And that the only thing being created is what who uh, is not only who God is, but what he's saying and doing. Yeah. And so I, 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 the more I thought about this, I thought, wow, what a place to be because when when they're when we look at the uh, the phrasing of "have no other gods before me," I believe it is. Uh-huh. Um, there is the uh, aspect that says that uh, in, in in Jewish literature that there is no word for to have, but that to, but that instead the word there means to be to. So rather than it being "you shall have no other gods before besides me," you 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 uh you shall be to me you no know, you shall be to me than to uh, no other gods besides me it's this continued belonging this is it's this continued placement that we're standing right there on this path with him that he's established and that we're walking with him on this path which brings me if you don't mind um, of talking about the word the very word the ba which is word devarim is the plural of the word debar which means word so words mm-hmm. and so i did i did a word study on this and um looking at the individual letters it's kind of fascinating to realize that the is spelled dalif bet resh. dalif is a door a path a way of life it's a movement in or out of this the spiritual world, an open heart to the suffering and needs of the world. And also it means humility. Mm -hmm. Whereas with bait, it says that it's a tent, it's a house, it's a body, a household family inside Mm -hmm. or within a mid place filled with God's presence or otherwise known as our heart as, Oh man, I I really like bait. That's I like that letter. (laughs) Um, And then resh is a head a person, what is the highest, most important, chief, leadership. But it also refers to moral emptiness, need for holiness, and work of Holy Spirit in our lives. And so what a fascinating word to be established, predicated on that God is creating a way of life into his world that creates a place of living and belonging with him that parallels both the he- heaven and the earth, and that it provides a place filled with God's presence that abides in our own hearts and as well as in our own, own homes. And that as a result, yeah. we continue to see a need for repentance by establishing resh Ruach, Ha-Kadesh. Resh is the first letter in Ruach HaKadosh. And so it is definitely the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. It's looking at this aspect of God that is very much um, ethereal or non-corporeal in a way that we we are interconnected in a way that it's it's unseen. It's, it's invisible. And so, but yet it, it is necessary to be able to have this step because if we're going to follow along a path with God... We need to have a way of entering that path. And the only way to do that is through repentance. Right. Time being Torah writes it as repentance turning away from the path you were following to follow a new path toward holiness. Mm-hmm. And I like that because it's continuing to add this idea of what we look at when we see God's word at play. It it not only is it saying something, but it says he's got to saying something to create something. He's creating a relationship just by speaking. But like everything else, (laughs) Hebrew has a fascinating um, shadow effect. So we see this in these letters, but at the same time, there's a mirrored effect in the negative of what these words, these letters mean. And Mm. Dalif means excessive humility or false humility. Bet is spiritual pride and arrogance. And resh is self-righteousness and being judgmental and an abuse of leadership. Hmm. No. What yeah, now? Big,
1: that that I, kind uh, of goes to the, the power of, of uh, our words. Our words and God's word, if we ignore it, can lead to death and destruction. If we take heed of it, it brings life, but also our words to one another can be life or death in the power of the tongue. Just
0: right. As James says. Right. And so I think it's an amazing thing that in, in God providing these, these words, these decalogues, that he's providing a doorway, a path to enter into a home that's been created between him and Israel, where he is the leader. And that by him being the leader, he's providing us a way of following him and walking with him in a life that would see to our blessing, to our provision, to our satisfaction, not just for even us, but even for him. And it makes sense then that when when the Israelites did not did not follow him and honor him and show that they were relying upon him that the land stopped producing and their lives got harsh and miserable yeah and they became much much uh, dalif also has an interesting concept to where it is that you can look at it from two sides kind of like a door on one side the left side it's empty and hollow but on the other side, you've got this aspect of something there to come in and to fill that empty void. Mm. Yeah, there's part. I don't know. This is where it just stops my brain and I just have to just, stop and just think and settle in on this. You know what I mean?
1: <laughs> yeah, there's a lot here. And we've, Which is, we've shown kind of a lot at our listeners today.
0: We have, we have. But if you can take anything away from this episode, and really I think if even for me, what I take away from this is is that um, there are social, relational, there's so many different types of aspects going on here, spiritual um, um, and, and, and the like. And so we can begin to see life and relationship with God from so many different layers that we can be in a way for me at least i can be affirmed in thinking that life has life can be more than just one thing Hmm. it can be deep it can be superficial it can be wide it can be the whole idea of even a river which in itself has some interesting connections to this as well which i'm not going to go into but uh there is one piece that I didn't bring up, and that was that there, the the brook, the, the river that, that definitely comes out of that rock that, that Moses hits. Mm-hmm. There is an aspect of that there along with an aspect of a tree. And that always takes me to Psalm 1 about wisdom and what it means to have wisdom and what wisdom looks like. And that's a tree planted by a river, and it's always producing in season. Yes which of course can take us right back into the idea of sharecropping and betrothed.
1: Yeah. And, and so. and we should maybe do a series on trees and rivers throughout scripture. Cause that's a whole nother big, big thing. Oh uh, but, boy. <laughs> but I think maybe we wrap up our episode for, for now. What do you say?
0: Yeah, I think so. I think I have given myself enough of a mind toaster to, <laughs> <laughs> Oh, okay. man. So if, I love how God anybody would this, like,
1: <laughs> absolutely. It, yeah, and we've said it before on the podcast that uh, I, I really need to look up the quote. I, I still think it's George McDonald. It might have been Chesterton that said, um, the scriptures are shallow enough for the meek to come and drink and deep enough for the theologians to drown. Mm-hmm. so if so I, I just want to echo what you said it, to our listeners if if this was a lot and maybe a little overwhelming, feel free to go listen to it multiple times, but also just take away an aspect of it that that the Holy spirit puts on your heart and kind of taps you and says, Hey, this, this part is for you for today. So um, we would love to hear from you. Uh, Please write to us at bearded Bible brothers at gmail.com. We have not been getting nearly enough mail. So we need, we need you to just write to us. So that we know that you guys, we know you're out there in the ether and, and listening because we we see the the stats on the number of countries we're in and and we love and appreciate that. But we'd also love to hear from you on on what else you'd like to study or book recommendations for us or what the Holy Spirit's doing in your life. So beardedbiblebrothers at gmail dot com, and uh, we'll catch you on the next podcast.